Welcome to Monster Porn, weird fiction and horror podcast. The podcast that believes that zombies are overrated. Werewolves are much better kissers. Today's story, Ia the Astronaut by Brett Norwood. Shit, that's me. Here at Monster Porn, we like to give back to the community, which is why we're getting involved in schools. We call it fear-based learning. Let's take a look at how fear-based learning is being implemented in the classroom. Here we have young Jimmy. What are you studying, Jimmy? That's right. Jimmy's got his geometry book open, ready to learn, and perched on top of his geometry book, is a reticulant penis monster in full engorgement. Now, Jimmy, can you tell me what the definition of slope is? <laughs> That's correct. Rise over run. Because he rose and he ran. Over here we have Susie. Susie is the top of her class. She's nominated for class president right now. Here you can see firsthand how fear-based learning imprints conditioned responses right on the brain like a hot branding iron onto the flesh of cattle. Susie hasn't said a word, except what she keeps repeating, in a weak, haunted voice, for all semester. And that word is polymorphic. She'll never fucking forget that SAT word now. If you, like us, value the growth and development of young people into scarred and tormented adults, you can support the Monster Porn fear-based learning program in your community by purchasing gear from the Monster Porn merch store at teespring.com slash stores slash monsterporn or by reviewing monsterporn on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, Monsterbaiters. The children are our bleak and foreboding future. With a ding, a little turquoise rectangle flashed in the bottom right of the monitor. Shane alt-tabbed out of his FTP client, which was running a script file, to MSN Messenger. The message was Craig. The message said, Do you not have the downward spiral? Shane messaged back, Quit spying on my music library. It's my job as developer to spy on you. How many other people are on here right now? Craig asked. Shane alt-tabbed over to his application, Pandora's box, and read the admin panel. Five. There were five users, including him and Craig. Well, that was not very impressive. A few, Shane messaged back. And you really should just change the name to Pandora, man, Craig messaged. I told you, Shane replied. Then I think some of the reference would be lost. Shane had given Craig the full manifesto before. Peer-to-peer file-sharing clients were the future of computing, the internet, and communication technology in general. The music industry was about to change real quick with the advent of the MP3 codec, and Shane was going to be on the cutting edge. The traditional record industry would turn over on its head, roll over Beethoven. But Pandora's box was more than that. 
Music sharing was just the start. The music industry would be overtaken with the anarchical rising tide of egalitarian peer-to-peer file sharing. And traditional copyright law would become outmoded and finally fail with no central server to destroy or person to prosecute. The guilt being everywhere and nowhere all at once. Distributed across the population of the world. But beyond this, peer-to-peer clients would change the dissemination of information itself. Information could be seeded all over the world, shared freely, and no one person or entity could control its flow as long as the peer-to-peer clients existed on various end-user machines around the world. It was a literal Pandora's box for the powers that be. Shane let it go without getting back on his soapbox this time, and Alt tabbed back to his FTP client. He read the logging coming back from the server in real time as the FTP client sent the commands from his script file. Error. Bad login. In red serif letters. Access denied. Shane's manifesto and digital egalitarianism aside, he was aware that he was only half-joking about it being his job to spy on Pandora's box users. He was well aware that anyone who knew what he was doing with the software could gain significant data about other users. At the very least, an IP address linked to a geographic location, and file names and paths of the files being transferred. This is why Shane never used his own application for pornography, even though, on the down-low, he knew that pornography would be the content that would make or break his platform, just like it had for VHS in its battle against Betamax 10 or 15 years before. He just had to let users figure that out for themselves so he didn't have to seed the content himself and dirty his hands. Really, it was certain they would figure it out before too long. A few things are certain. Death, taxes, and titty pictures. Shane spaced out and watched the red error messages float by. The messages logged the failure of a repeated FTP login request to an IP address that Shane had found by inspecting the source of the web page. Was the CDN hosting all of the image resources for NASA.gov? If he could gain file transfer access to that server. The ding of MSN Messenger called him back from reverie. Craig had messaged him. So how's your Playboy bunner? R-O-F-L, he answered, not even remotely close to rolling on the floor. IDK, dude. He had dreamt about her. That's not the weird thing. Craig knew that something about this random girl had stung Shane in some way, but Shane had never let loose this fact, that he had dreamed of her, and it was certainly her, before he met her. Ia and her sister Ina turned up at the high school that year, after having been homeschooled for years prior. Ia was, like Shane and Craig, a sophomore, Ina a freshman. Both were conservative, stereotypically blonde Scandinavian girls who wore their hair up in buns most of the time at school. Their clothing bordered on the plain. They belonged to one of the kinds of Lutheran who don't dance. In short, Ia was one of the last girls you suspect someone like Shane to burn brain cycles obsessing over, and he probably would not have been, except for the anomaly of the dream. A few nights before the semester began, in late August, Shane dreamt he was outside at night in the winter, and there were colored lights zipping around in the sky like pebbles skipping on the face of a pond. Walking along the highway out to his parents' house in the country, he met a samurai paused along the roadside. The samurai was gazing dramatically into the distance, 
And when he saw Shane coming, he pointed his arm with all the nobility entailed in Bushido into the sky and warned Shane in a strong voice. They are coming down now, and none may stop them, though the mighty may try from coming. Shane feared to ask the who and the why, and he fled up his parents' driveway, where he buried himself in a snowdrift near the house to hide from whatever may come. In some unnoticed turn of the mind, the snowdrift came to contain a small steel bunker, behind the door of which Shane now cowered, watching the door like a hunted mouse. When the door began to slide with a metallic grind, and with no egress beside it, Shane prepared to fight. Deeply, he knew what was coming, or thought he did, and he knew no physical means could resist. Still, his last resort was the desperation of the caught mouse faced with the cat. He would claw and gnash as long as he was able. Yet it was no horror, but Ia who entered. Shane would not learn her name until the day she sat down across from him in the Algebra II classroom. But it was her, for sure, in her plain blue sweater that reminded Shane vaguely of a Star Trek uniform, with her long blonde hair, in this case, left free. She said something to comfort him, though the words were lost now to Shane's memory, and Shane's terror transformed instantly, almost unnaturally, to affection. Craig was sitting next to Shane in the back of the Algebra II classroom when it happened. When Shane saw Ia walk in with her eyes down, greeting no one, and take her seat near the front of the room, Shane lost his train of thought mid-sentence while Craig examined his face with a wry smile. It wasn't just that this blonde girl with the v-neck sweater reminded Shane of the dream. The recognition wasn't questioned for a heartbeat. He knew that he knew her. For weeks, Shane passed her in the hall without saying anything. She never looked at him, but he surreptitiously examined her always. Ia had few friends, who were also bunners as they were called, the apostolic Lutheran girls with their hair up in buns. But she and Shane had no friends in common, and little pretext to talk. Truly, though, Shane was just afraid. Yet after several weeks... Shane resolved to try to talk to her and see what happened. He caught her by her locker, as she closed it while hugging several books to the breast of her sweater, read that day. There was a cross pendant hanging against her collar. She sensed his attention and raised her blue eyes, perhaps reluctantly. Hi, Shane said. His brain had not calculated beyond this. She smiled faintly. How's it going today? Shane asked her, halfway still passing her by, as if to obscure the fact that talking to her had been the intention. Her look read to him as suspicion. It looked like, why are you talking to me? Which is fair, but it was also the common look among the bunners when the heathens spoke to them. I am doing well, she answered curtly, and with unusual grammatical consideration. She let the faint smile fade with no haste, and turned away without returning the question. Shane proceeded several steps down the hall before glancing back, feeling embarrassed by her unwillingness to converse with him, and found that she had also looked back to examine him, yet not with any positive or friendly sentiment evident in her face, but with confusion, perhaps, 
confusion mingled with sour concern. Shane's inexplicable foreknowledge of this random bunner remained the thorn in his side through the semester, only bothering him more and more as her indifference toward him became clearer with time. Shane tried to rationalize the meaninglessness of that foreknowledge by wondering whether he had known her before in elementary or kindergarten. But she wasn't, he found, in the yearbooks and photos. Ia's sister Ina was of a somewhat different stripe. Unlike her Lutheran peers, she mixed and flirted with the jocks, yet still while withholding herself somewhat aloof from those heathens. She was more impish and outgoing, but also detached from the worldly just the same. She would chat with them in the halls and go to the games, but as far as anyone knew, she didn't hang out with them outside of school, and she resisted the advances of a couple of the guys she had entranced. Paul had tried to take her to a dance, but she wouldn't go. Craig had told Shane once that Ina was hot, in his words, for a crazy Christian chick. From that conversation, in which Craig made some additional commentary on Shane's unexplained fascination with Ia, Craig had come up with the joke of assembling a harem of playboy bunners. They could be the Hugh Hefners of the Apostolic Lutheran Girls. That winter, Craig got into psychedelics and Timothy Leary and started talking about machine elves and doors of perception and alternative states of consciousness. He started listening to 60s music. Shane was a little intrigued, but so far had been too elitist and idealistically moralistic to let Craig drag him down the psychedelics rabbit hole. As Craig's best friend, there was a lot of pressure to trip on shrooms with him. A senior, Jeff Sikorsky, had gotten Craig into it, beginning with the mushrooms and then advancing into other things, along with some of the other gifted and talented kids. Sikorsky was lead violinist in the orchestra, and an insufferable, in Shane's estimation, NPR hippie, who would quote both the Iliad and the Tao Te Ching in casual conversation. Shane had no time for this sort. But even if Craig couldn't get Shane to hang out with his new psychopomp and guru, Sikorsky, he could try to get Shane to trip with him alone. Man, there's no point in trying to rip photos from NASA, Craig told him over IM. The UFO occupants aren't just out there, like, what we're thinking of as aliens are actually interdimensional beings, Shane. Read John Mack. The truth isn't out there. It's in you, man. That's what being a psychonaut is all about. You want to see them, don't you? Shane disagreed heartily. Truth is not subjective woo-woo New Age magic. Shane was interested in hard facts, photographic evidence, nuts and bolts technology. Shane replied, I'm sure you can see all kinds of things on shrooms, aliens included. You can probably see whatever the fuck truth you want. Dude, you get two people on DMT in a room together, and they see the same beings. How do you explain that? It's called confabulation, Shane replied. They share a conversation with them. Like, how would that work? Shane didn't reply. Craig said after a few minutes, You should try it, man. Consider it an experiment. If you find there's nothing there, then okay, there's nothing there. You'll never know unless you try it. Shane relented. He agreed to try shrooms once. Craig's parents had a cabin in the back of their lot, where Shane and Craig and their friends would hang out. Around ten, 
when Craig's parents had gone to bed. They undertook the experiment to contact what Craig, following Leary, referred to as machine elves, those pale, fetal-looking beings people claimed to encounter aboard UFOs. While Shane considered the whole thing quackery, he was also a little bit terrified. These beings had always terrified him, and it was part of why he had always been obsessed with the truth about UFOs. It started with Craig's face melting. Shane pointed it out. Hey man, your face, he said, and Craig tried to fix it. But when he shoved his face back together, it kind of shoved his eyes out to the side, like Admiral Akbar. That's funny, Shane told him. It's a trap! And Shane laughed. But after a while, as Shane was watching the images on the turned-off TV, and Craig was staring at the ceiling, Shane had the feeling they were being watched, and he remembered the machine elves. There was a sinking feeling, and a palpable feeling of expectation, like there had been in the dream, as he hid in the bunker waiting for the door to open. Craig must have felt it too, because he sat up suddenly and looked around. He said something like, Are the windows empty? Shane was afraid to look at the flat black windows of the cabin. He knew that, in his state, his mind could see whatever it feared, and he feared beyond that, that Craig was right and what he saw now could be, in some sense, real. Do you hear that tapping? Craig hissed. Suddenly, Shane could hear tapping, as of fingers on glass. There was no way Shane was looking at the windows. Craig had his face shoved into a pillow. Shane tried covering his eyes with his hands, but it wouldn't work. It would work for a second, but then he could see through them. He'd take his hands away and put them back, and it would work for a second, and then he'd see the cabin around him, all the same once again, right through the palms of his hands. That sinking feeling persisted. It just kept sinking like there was no basement in the soul, like it went down forever. The flavor of fear was as palpable in the air as auto-exhaust suffocating and evil. The camera did a spinning pan around Shane as he knelt in the middle of the floor, holding his head out of his mind. Fine! he screamed. I'll do it! I'll look! Shane threw his eyes toward the largest window at the front of the cabin, and at first he saw nothing in the darkness, and he began to feel some relief. But then he could see the long, gray fingers wrapping and the row of bald heads. A light came on in the yard, from above, cycling through orange and blue tones, washing the gray aliens in color and revealing the smoothness of their skin, their fitted coveralls, and their wide, empty eyes. Sweet Jesus, Craig whined, who was now watching. Machine elves. Before they knew much else, they were rising through the room and passing through that square window, no longer able to scream, no longer able to move. The glass felt like vibrating gelatin, and they were soon in the cold night air, together with the greys. They were towed up into the sky as the light went out. The Tall One 
It was spiritually, if not physiologically, female, explained in a booming contrabasso voice that Shane must get naked. He was in an entryway with smooth curved walls flooded with diffuse light. An arched door led to another room at which she stood, about five feet tall and as skinny as a praying mantis, face not unlike the others, who milled around Shane, waiting, as blank and listless as machines. Something in her gaze spoke of peace and calm. Her fetal, teratoid features unsettled him deeply. But he began to feel comforted, as if this thing were his mother swaddling him in blankets of emotional validation. Her flat, floppy disk drive mouth never changed. But he read it now as a soft smile. He took off his clothes, handing each item off to the small greys as he did, who then folded the items and placed them along a low bench built into the semicircular wall. Then he was led into the inner room, where a table, of one piece with the room itself, waited empty, flooded with neutral light. The air smelled of matches and cleaning chemicals. As he got onto the table, panic began to surge again. This was way too like a doctor's office, and that realization filled him with childlike terror. He also realized that he was, impossibly, no longer high. He could no longer see through things or change them with his mind. Everything seemed solid and real, even though the things he saw were impossible. Craig walked by, slowly, listlessly, like a scolded child. He was weeping. He didn't look at Shane as the short greys escorted him through the room. Shane couldn't move to watch where he went, but was forced to stay flat on the table, as the mother grey held a long wiry instrument before his face, steadily inching closer, bringing it to his nose and then inserting it inside. Shane screamed as it made contact with the back of his sinus cavity beneath his eyes, and he felt a pinch and then the pinch escalated to a forceful breaking of the roof of his sinus cavity. Nearby, Craig was also screaming. Mother's mute and impassive smile still seemed, psychically, to smile. Shane blacked out. When he was next aware, he was watching a large screen on a uniform wall showing him the destruction of the world by various means. Because they were so lifeless, it took him a moment to realize that two small greys flanked him, as human as furniture, staring blankly into the walls at odd angles, as if they had just been switched off. There was an open, arched doorway to the curved hall. All of its manufacture was flawless, of one piece, and self-illuminated. Past the store, Craig his face senseless like a drunk, was led past by the hand of an undressed beauty with big eyes and flowing hair. Shane turned his eyes back to the monitor and beheld a dead earth, scrubbed clean by the bristle brush of a multivariate apocalypse of environmental destruction, volcanoes, comets, war, every horseman one could imagine. There was a donut. On the screen, right in the middle, it was blue and luminescent. It flickered slightly and bulged. It was a ripple in the actual fabric of the screen, 
As Shane wondered at this development, he noticed that a thin blue shaft of light had broken through the donut hole. It was strengthening. His eyes followed it toward himself and found it landing square in his heart. His short attendance burst to life, scrambling and confused. As this tear in the screen expanded and ripped all the way through the visionary apocalypse, up and down the wall and met the ceiling. Blue light began to consume the craft as Shane was pulled off his feet and out over the unbounded and frigid northern sea, thousands of feet below. A black triangle swooped from the sea haze of the ancient maelstrom and swallowed him like a shark. He was still naked, standing in the soft, even light of a new captor. The room was rectangular now. The light did not emanate from the walls themselves, but there were discrete bulbs set, recessed into the ceiling. The walls were largely black. Through an open door, there was a railed catwalk visible, and people at a distance. Shane was increasingly aware of his nudity. He placed himself near a wall, less in view, but still able to gaze out into the ship. Two people, regular old human beings, dressed in white robes like evening gowns, entered the room, walking backwards, and threw a similar robe to him. Shane pulled it over his head. By the time his head was through the neck, they were gone. Cautiously, Shane embarked from the chamber onto the railed catwalk, and he beheld something like a vast docking bay full of smaller UFOs. Technicians in white coveralls were working on them. They looked, save for the lack of grease and oil stains, just like mechanics from his town. Everyone seemed content to ignore him. Eventually, Shane made it down the length of the gallery and entered a set of high-arched double doors, reminiscent of a church, yet made of some metal. Inside was a dimly lit rectangular chamber and another double door across from the first. From the shadows, a woman approached and spoke to him. You find yourself in much trouble, she said. Yeah, Shane ejaculated. Clearly, it was her, emerging from the frame of shadow. The pewter cross glistened on her neck. Her straight, brown-blonde hair was down, resting on the shoulders of her blue Star Trek sweater. We found you passing the Valley of Death, Shane. She paused as if that were a complete and self-explanatory thought. Then she said, Come now. And she ushered him through the second set of doors. Shane found himself in what looked like an old Scandinavian Lutheran church with a high ceiling ribbed with beams, rows of identical pews, a pulpit up front beneath a stark, naked cross. A family stood in the aisle facing him. Shane, said the man. I'm Carl, and this is my wife Hannah, and our daughters Ia and Ina you know. These are our sons Enoch, Gunner, Aiken, and Newt, and our youngest daughter, Mari. Welcome to our home. He said welcome, but they all looked at him with that Lutheran suspicion and discomfort, except Newt, who seemed to be fascinated by the stranger. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ we found you when we did, Carl said. You were passing in the valley of the shadow of death. You and thank Ia for that, son. She saw you in tribulation. Shane looked at Ia's impassive face. She lowered her eyes. 
I... I don't understand, Shane said, and then tagged on, sir, considering his company, which felt highly unnatural. Why... Shane searched for the question, but the question was too large to grasp. Why... Why are you on a UFO? The Lutherans exchanged glances. Carl's mouth opened like he was about to answer, but struggling with something, when his wife, Hannah, interrupted him. Would you like a pasty, dear? Beg your pardon? Shane asked. I say you're hungry. Come and have a seat and be at home. As she led him into another room, she was on about how the Lord had provided him as a guest, and they had to treat him with the grace of the Lord. She spoke of hospitality, but the takeaway was that he was a burden. Ia and Ina followed behind him. Hannah set Shane down at a long dining table and busied herself in the kitchen. Standing near the wall, Ia and Ina exchanged a few whispers and glanced repeatedly at Shane like a problem that needed to go away. How? Shane again struggled to put words to the vast sea of unknowing. How did you know I was in trouble? He asked Ia. Ina glanced at her sister and then answered for her. The Lord showed us by signs. I don't understand, Shane said. And he felt suddenly like crying, which he had to fight to resist. I don't understand anything. What happened to Craig? What is this place? Why the fuck are you on a UFO? What in the world is a pasty? Excuse my French. You are in with the demons, Ia finally said. The fallen ones. Once Ia had broken the dike, Ina filled the silence. The Lord made them in the start of his works. Builders who rebelled against him and made things apart from his plan. So he cordoned them off in the outer dark that his angels might make things right with him. But the old builders were cunning. They built things out in the dark and seek after every chance to get back into the world of God's works. And they found they can use the free will of man as a, as a sort of loophole, a back door. The excitement with which Ina had spilled this mythology startled Shane, and, it seemed, everyone in the room. But thank Christ we found you when we did, Hannah repeated, not looking from her work. But, why, how, Shane struggled. Whose UFO is this? While Ia and her mother exchanged worried glances, Ina burst out proudly, drawing the other women's alarmed gaze. Ours? Look, Ia said, redirecting the conversation. The demon kind use the human mind to get in, you understand. They, they, like God maybe, require human belief to become real to us and have power over us. And, and the thing you did with Craig, it sort of, uh, lubricates belief, makes it easy. That's why it's dangerous, you understand? What you did? Where Ina's explanatory style was that of an excited child, Ia's was matter-of-fact and begrudged. She spoke with her hands, as if trying to physically hand him the concepts of which he was ignorant and unprepared, in chunks that could be held. While Ia paused to gauge his comprehension, Shane glanced at Ina. At his glance, she burst forth again. There were UFOs before the flood, she told excitedly. What? Shane started to say, but she was already speaking. Like before the great flood of Noah. Our people found them in the glaciers generations ago. They've been our secret. 
She whispered the last part, as if to emphasize this was a secret. This is fucking crazy, Shane muttered, and then glanced at his host's back. Ah, excuse my French. We're worried about your friend, Hannah said without looking or acknowledging his gaffe. Yeah, where is Craig? Shane wondered again. They've had him before, Ia said. What? What does that mean? Shane asked. It's not his first time, Ina said, though he might not remember it all. In other words, Hannah said, delivering his plated snack to the table. He's farther down the path than you were when we found you. Shane watched over the docking bay from the catwalk, absorbing the designs of the craft while he absorbed the unreal reality in which he found himself embedded. Lanky Scandinavian men worked on the craft in white coveralls. Ia came out and met him. Stiffly, she stood a few paces away, not joining him and leaning over the rail, and also not looking at him. She wasn't shy. She showed no sign of being flustered. She was just... Insulated. She didn't know how to interact with outsiders. Do you need anything? She asked. No, Shane answered. They're like hackers, he said. The greys or machine elves or demons, whatever they are. They search for vulnerabilities and exploit them to gain access to the universe. Ia didn't say anything, but she took another step and put her hand on the rail. She cocked her head to show she was interested to hear more. I... Shane started. He thought about what he was going to say and decided to continue. I do the same thing, so maybe I understand it, kinda. I'm most familiar with DDoS and brute force attacks, but what they're doing is more like a backdoor exploit. In this case, all the security measures are aimed at protecting what's been designed to be the front door, but this oversight has allowed the existence of a backdoor that the engineer, the creator in this case, may not even be aware of. I've never heard it explained like this, Ia said honestly. But, God knows, that is sure. What isn't sure is why he allows it. The thing is, once you identify the back door, you can prevent it from being exploited. We know that the back door is human consciousness. What are you saying? Craig has become an instance of the back door. If nothing else, I can... What's the word? I can sure up that particular back door. I can stop the machine elves from using him. He's still probably out there somewhere, right? Getting rods shoved up his nose and vivisected and who knows what else. What he doesn't realize is that they're not in charge of him. They rely on his mind. So really, he's in charge of them, right? So what are you saying, Shane? Can you send me back to where he is? Ia nodded and put on a sour, pensive face. But she didn't answer right away. Shane now watched her face, though she resisted his gaze. Eventually, she said, Yes. Shane nodded thoughtfully into the distance of the vast room. After a moment, he spoke again. You know, before I met you at school, I met you in a dream. Was that real? Now she looked at him. You believed in them, didn't you? I mean, for a while now? 
In the greys? UFOs? Yeah. Your mind has been open to them as well. It isn't the first time for you either, Shane. Her eyes flitted over his, blue. God, Shane said. But, she was quick to add, it isn't like it is for him, because of the drugs. What is to you a faint suggestion in a dream is, to him, a whole world, nearly as real as God's creation. But, Shane said, you were there. Ia smiled faintly. It was also the first time I met you. It was the first time I saw you in serious trouble. She touched his arm on the rail. It's brave of you to want to go back for him. May God protect you, Carl said, operating the retro-futuristic levers of a control console. Are you sure about this, Carl? Anna asked him, fidgeting with her hands beside him. You're sending a lost soul back to the maw of hell. Carl paused and took a breath, staring through the viewport out onto the tortured sea, which sprayed into the steely sky, obscuring the boundaries of heaven and earth. Thank you, Shane said. For your hospitality, for rescuing me, for uh, having me in your home. Hardly noticed, the littlest brother, Newt, had fastened himself to Shane's side on the bridge. Are you really going to fight the demon kind? He suddenly chirped in awe. I don't know fight is the right word, Shane told him. Only the Lord has power over demon kind, Newt, Carl chastened, and then directed his words at Shane. So God with you, son. Don't forget about the Lord. Don't forget about the Lord, Newt echoed to Shane. As Carl powered up the transport beam, Shane turned back toward the rear wall of the control deck, where Ia and Ina hung back with crossed arms. Ina smiled wryly. Ia's expression was harder to read. See you in school, Shane told her. The blue light overwhelmed all else. As it did, he thought he heard Carl's voice, hushed. Yeah, he shouldn't remember a thing. The atmosphere of deeply biological terror told Shane he was in the right place, at least as much as the seamless luminescent steel architecture, always mirroring the exterior curve of the flying saucer and also that odor of matches and cleaning agents. He was in a hall. A troop of short greys turned to face him, betraying no reaction. They began hopping at him, in gravity-defying leaps, reminding him of astronauts on the moon. Their perfect relaxation of aspect and stiff legs made the motion seem impossible. Yet they did it with such supernatural ease. It looked like bad video game physics. Like if a cheat code had been applied. Jesus, why are they hopping? Shane uttered and turned to run. He certainly wasn't being done any favors by gravity. Before he got very far, he found himself unable to move. The mother appeared around the far bend of the hall, all limbs and elbows like an insect, eyes like the void. Do not fear, she seemed to say. There is no pain, no harm. We are your family. In the days of the end, we shall descend 
to save your race from fire and flood and famine. And yet, your leaders shall persecute us, but you will not persecute us, because you know that we are family. Release me, Shane commanded. It is for your good, the mother told him. You are not real, Shane said. You have no right to exist. The mother smiled in his mind. The short grays had lined up behind him. There seemed to be no boundary between her thoughts and his, or between either and the short grays who had little consciousness of their own. Thoughts were shared equally between the nodes like, like a peer-to-peer file-sharing client, a distributed network, except that there was a boundary. The mother chose what she shared. No one else in the system had that choice. Are we not real? Real is, as real seems, the mother told him in her booming, directionless voice. Does this not seem real? Where's Craig? Shane demanded. Brother Craig is safe and well with his family, Shane, she said. Shane could see which thoughts the mother was uploading from his mind. It was selective. Her gaze was not omnipresent but limited. It was swift like a computer script, but singular. Also like a single-thread computer script. I see that you are searching for issues with our way of communication, she observed. You rely on belief to be here, Shane told her, hoping this truth would shake her. It had no perceptible effect, but he had little sign these things had any sort of emotion to betray. That wall, Shane said, pointing with his eyes at the saucer's boundary. It's there because I want it to be there, just like you. The question Ia had stated, of why God would allow the back door and the security of his creation, had bugged Shane as a developer. In this moment, a possible answer arose from the back burner, where that question had been simmering. He remembered the story of a software team who deliberately introduced what they called gremlins into their own network. They infected their live end-user system with malware, intentionally, and it seemed like an insane thing to do. But it had proven smart. It was a test. If there were gremlins hacking away at their system all the time, it forced them to always make the system stronger, to find every new way it could fail, until it was always ready for almost anything, and the ineffectual gremlins were mostly only relegated to flailing ineptly at the well-fortified fringes. Shane convinced himself there was no wall. And, indeed, there was no wall. Only the dim sea. The mother gazed at this serenely, but inwardly, Shane saw in her mind an alarm had gone off, not emotional like a human reaction, but more like an error being thrown by a computer. He found himself able to move under his own power once again. Take me to see Craig, he said. I need to talk to him. Oh, of course, she said, to his surprise, her confidence unshaken. We are happy to take you to see your brother Craig. He followed her along the hall. The short ones followed behind. Eventually there was an open, arched door on his right. She stood aside and let him see within. Craig, Shane said, rounding the corner. Craig, let's go! He stopped dead as he saw within the brightly lit room, 
where Craig sat on the edge of a cot that was of one piece with the floor, his smile shining. The wall of the room was lined with tanks full of yellow fluid, and in them curled fetuses were gestating. Around the floor, several children played, large-eyed, with sparse, light-colored hair on their bulbous heads. Beside Craig sat his wife, a pale woman with large blue eyes and thin white hair. She reminded Shane of the mother, but more human. In Craig's arms, a passive and horrible baby lay swaddled. Go, Craig asked, beaming, and Shane knew there was no saving him now. This was his world, as real as real. The mother instantly uploaded Shane's terror, his new failure of confidence. Shane was paralyzed, and she levitated him down the hall. To further prove the fear-based learning concept, MonsterPorn is seeking a grant from the Department of Education to test the efficacy of replacing Chromebooks in schools with elder, mandible-eyed Trugnagoths. The Pentagon Program for the Weaponization of Education to subject the masses to control paradigms may also be a relevant avenue for funding. To take another example from the pilot classroom, Young Diego here is currently entranced by the flamenco-like ten-armed dance of the elder mandible-eyed Trugnagoth. On its native world of Astakar, the Trugnagoth would dance in order to entrance the jewel-feathered Ikigil that serves as its primary prey. What you should know here is that when the Trugnagoth opens its serene eyes, as a final act of entrancement, it will briefly pierce the veil of reality, revealing the true nature of man as merely a shadow of light. If Diego then survives the Trugnagoth's attempt to consume him, starting with his face, Diego will leave the classroom overwhelmed by the burdensome enlightenment of cosmic knowledge. Education is power. I mean, not for the student, obviously. (laughs) No. But for the lizard oligarchs, who will rule over a broken and abused population. Amen. Monster Porn Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media, with special funding for the enslavement of man provided by DARPA. Today's story was Ia the Astronaut. I just realized Matt has been missing this whole episode. Oh well.
Good day, Monster Baiters. Brett here. I realize I was already here, but still here. You know, that's just what I say at this point. But hey, you know what? Moving on. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, first, I blame the education system for your taste in podcasts. And second, please review Monster Porn on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you are a hardcore monster baiter like your mom and dad, check out the store at teespring.com slash stores slash monster porn. More t-shirt designs are going to be revealed this month. And follow us on social media, where you can keep up with our favorite, adorable, little Lovecraftian abomination, Nermal. As always, we appreciate all the reviews you've left us, and all the great support from the community of monster baiters. The podcast has been growing, and it's your feedback, along with that growth, that tells us to keep going, and that keeps us inspired. Actually, what keeps us inspired is probably our psychological disorders. But oh well. Stay weird. And Godspeed, Strange Cowboy. It will briefly pierce the veal of veal. Fuck. Oh, we're not talking about veal. God, I'm hungry. The music industry would be overtaken with the anarchical rising tide of egalitarian peer-to-peer file... Fuck, fuck, The Lord made them in the start of his works. Builders who rebelled against him and made things apart from his plan, so he cordoned them off in the outer dark that his angels made make things. Amen. Are you sure about this, Clyde? Clyde. Who the fuck is Clyde?